stuff, it's always my fault. Uh, I'm not very technologically savvy. Uh, I was speaking at Arab, Alabama, and there is such a place, Arab. He was supposed to be Arad, Alabama, and the postmaster transposed that letter. And they sent him a note and said, hey, you got this wrong. He said, deal with it. So they became Arab instead of Arad. I did not calculate traffic on the parkway, drove down there, walked in the back door. Deacon in charge of audiovisual was sweating. I walked in. He handed me this mic, clipped it to me. I walked down the aisle, stood in front of the room, looked at the thing, had one button, said no. Well, I'm not an idiot. I'm not going to turn it to no. Things will blow up with you. And then they said that no is on upside down. And so, uh, anyway, it, it, it could be my fault. Uh, I actually talk about that on a podcast. It's no or on. Uh, and I do have a little podcast called Keeping Up With Jones, the Lonnie Jones podcast adventure. If you're not listening to that, I would solicit your listens. Uh, it's a good, soft introduction. You share it with people and go, hey, here's a guy that says some funny stuff, and there's always an application, and it's often either a spiritual application or something to do with psychology. I got a couple of things on grief and anxiety, but uh, a lot of stuff that, that talks, and it's a good introduction to the church to people without a, just a, a overt, hey, here's a Bible study, and so would solicit your prayers on that. Uh, typically when I study, uh, I like to study things in the macro. I like to get a view of the book from 10,000 feet. I think one of the mistakes we've made through the years is we've allowed ourselves to read our Bibles chopped up in chapters because they weren't originally written in chapters. And then we've allowed ourselves to, to take this, and there's, there's harmony of the Scriptures. I, there's no doubt about that. But we, we're going to study the book of Romans, and we spend half the semester in Ephesians. If you can't read Romans by itself and understood what Paul wrote to the Romans, you understand Romans. And if you can't read Galatians and understand what Paul wrote to the Galatians by reading Galatians by itself, you understand Galatians. So I like to study the text in situ. I like to get a big overview. And when I study any passage of Scripture, I look for three things. Facts. Who, what, when, where, how much, how high, how big, how many. Who's he writing? Who's he writing to? And what was going on when he wrote? And what do these words mean? And what did it mean to them? Not me superimposing what those words mean in an English-speaking country. So facts. Facts lead to concepts. Those are the eternal spiritual principle that the biblical writers are using to solve problems. And then those problem-solving tools can be applied. So facts, concepts, applications. Now, every now and then, I do a fact concept application. I call it a, a, a springboard passage. So we're going to look at this and jump from there to the main text. So I, I said all that to say that we're going to read a passage and we're not going to stay there super long. 1 Samuel chapter 4. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. This is an inaugural verse. They're telling you Eli is no longer the prophet or not going to be the prophet in Israel and Samuel is. So you've got this inaugural verse. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to fight against the Philistines. And the Israelites camped at Ebenezer. And the Philistines camped at Aphek. And the Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel. And as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men on the battlefield. And when the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh so that he may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. And so the people sent to Shiloh, and they brought back the ark of the covenant of the Lord Almighty who is enthroned between the cherubim, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. Now when the ark of the Lord's covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. Hearing this uproar, the Philistines asked, What is all this shouting in the camp of the Hebrews? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. A god has come into the camp, they said. Woe unto us, nothing like this has happened before. We're doomed. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Be strong, Philistines. Be men. Or you will become subjects to the Hebrews that they have been subject to you. Be men and fight. 
So you've got this typical Old Testament warfare scene. And I'm not a warrior. I've never been in combat. Uh, so, you know, I'm speaking about things I've read about. But Old Testament warfare was really, really different than, than modern warfare. You know, we've got toys. You've got a kid sitting in an air-conditioned thing killing people with a drone. We've got a rifle made in Murfreesboro, Tennessee called a Barrett 50 caliber, and a Canadian guy made a shot with it outside of a mile and a half on a human-sized target. Uh, we've played with some stuff with SWAT with night vision and infrared and see heat. They let us play with these things. That it looked like the band of a construction helmet and had a flip-down eyepiece, and you wore like a laptop panel on your chest, and you could mash the thing and you get a satellite view and look through this eyepiece and all the red dots were our people and all the green dots were other people and you could do this and you could see what the other guy was looking at from his perspective pretty cool stuff now they're $75,000 a piece so we don't have them we just got to play with them but there's all kind of I've got a, a an optic on my pistol called a Trigicon rear mounted red dot sight and I'd never used a red dot sight. I was wearing special made bifocals with the bifocal at the top just so I could see to shoot my pistol. And I played with a pistol that had one of these Trigicon sights on it and I'm shooting steel plates at 50 yards with a handgun. I'm shooting like I was 25 again. I, I put one on my 45 and I put one on my 22 and I killed frogs and squirrels with that pistol this year. It's, I killed a sack full of frogs with that little red dot sight. We've got technology that's unbelievable. These guys are on this hill, and these guys are on this hill. And they got sticks and clubs and swords and spears and bows and arrows and rocks. And they're not wearing any uniforms. They don't have a jersey with a Star of David on it in their name. They got guys with these big banners, and on top of each banner is a picture of an animal because each tribe in Israel had an animal mascot. Jesus was from the tribe of Judah, and their mascot was a lion. That's why Jesus can be the lion and the lamb. And somebody blows a trumpet, and you haul down in that valley and you start hacking on each other. The Japanese refer to it as the distance required for touching. My arm's length and your arm's length. Now think about a UFC fighter. Three rounds, five minutes. In a championship round, it's five rounds, five, and they're exhausted. And these are the predators of the planet, the top athletes in the world. You're running down a hill, and you're going to do hand-to-hand -hand combat with a guy. And there's no referee, and you can't tap out. If you want to kind of just get an idea about the, the brutality or the fear of that, go to Walmart. That's not the part that's like warfare. <laughs> go, go to Walmart and buy one of those $7 machetes from the camping department. Walk out in the woods and find you a Georgia pine that the wind has blown over. And you start at this end cut your way to the top of it and as you walk just start hitting those limbs as fast as you can first of all you run out of juice when we teach survival to the police officers we teach a hundred seconds if you tackle me and you can I'm either going to get up and if I can't get out from under you I'm gonna suck in all the real estate between us I'm gonna hold you and I'm gonna let you struggle against that for a hundred seconds now an amateur will push punch or try to roll which is stupid okay but after about a hundred seconds most people are out of juice so you take that machete and you swing at these limbs for a hundred seconds now the first time you miss a limb you're dead the first time that hand sweats and it's twist in your hand you're dead the first time you hit a limb and it sticks and you can't reset you're dead that's what these guys are doing. They're running down in this valley and they're hacking on each other. Jabbing, hacking, throwing rocks, using clubs. Maybe somebody's got a bow. And 4,000 Israelites die in this valley. And somebody blows a trumpet and they disengage. And they get up at the top of their hill and they go, what happened? It's halftime. <laughs> hey, Ark of the Covenant. When they finished the wilderness wanderings, they set the Ark of they set the tabernacle up uh, at Shiloh, and they put the covenant Ark in the Holy of Holies. 
and they're supposed to take it to battle with them. So they send to Shiloh, and the priests come, and they bring out this box, 52 inches by 32 by 32 inches, overlaid in hammered gold, and on top of it sits these two winged figures called cherubim. Now, I used to say that a cherubim was a four-winged angel and a seraphim was a six-winged angel. The Bible never calls them angels. Every time you deal with an angel, the Bible says this is an angel. These are called cherubim, and the others are called seraphim. So I don't know what they are. They're cherubim. So you've got these two-winged figures, and they come marching into camp, and when they see it, they shout. And, and some translations say that the earth rang again. Some translations say in the, in the earth shook. Uh, LSU versus Auburn at LSU. Last second score, LSU wins. The stadium burst into such a roar, it, it, it measures on the Richter scale. So I guess you can shout loud enough to shake the earth. I read it on the internet. It has to be true. Anyway, so, so you've got this thing that comes in, and the Philistines realize this, this is something about their God. The Israelites have their God. There's no internet. There's no Twitter. There's no TikTok. There's no Facebook. The Philistines know what God did in Egypt. His reputation has traveled. And so they say, hey, look, don't let this scare you. Be men. And if you don't go down there and you don't fight... You're going to be servants to the Hebrews like they've been servants to you, so let's, let's fight these guys. So round two, 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 10. And so the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated. And every man fled to his tent, and the slaughter was very great, and Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers, and the ark of God was captured and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Does that shock you the way that ended? Hey, look, we're in a battle. We lose 4,000 guys. We forgot the ark. You go get the ark. They bring the ark, and they still lose. They lose 30,000 men. And the ark of God gets taken as a war trophy. I'm going to ask you a couple of absolutely ridiculous questions. And I realize they're absolutely ridiculous questions. Question number one, what's, what's wrong with the ark? Nothing, <laughs> okay. Number two, is there anything wrong with the power of God? So what's, what's wrong with the Israelites here? Now, what you're going to say is lack of faith. Everybody in an audience, the Israelites had lack of faith. Let me offer you just an observation. I've been in a valley and 4,000 of my friends just got killed. And I escape the valley and I'm sitting on top of the hill. And you say, hey Lonnie, let's go back down in the valley. Hard pass. Okay? And then they bring in a 52 inch by 32 inch by 32 inch box overlaid in hammered gold and say, hey, let's go back down in the valley with the box. If the only thing that changes is the absence versus the presence of this box, and I'll follow the box back down into a meat grinder, there ain't nothing wrong with my faith. Do you understand that? The slopes of Mount Everest are littered with men who are highly motivated. The only thing that changes is they bring this box in, and, and, and the, oh, the ark is here. Let's go back down into the meat grinder. Something is missing and it has nothing to do with faith. It may be the application of faith. It may be the adherence to what God had said about the ark initially. I, I, but it wasn't their faith. Because the only thing that changed was the, the ark showed up and they fought it back in. Next ridiculous question. Now that the Philistines, or the Philistines, now that these guys have the ark, are they now God's special people? Now, wait a minute. The Ark of the Covenant. And so if it's the Ark that belongs to the Covenant and you have the Ark, do you not therefore have the Covenant? Well, that's just stupid as a run-over dog, right? Nobody believes that. Israel did not have a relationship with God because they had an Ark. Israel had an Ark because they had a relationship with God. And when I start defining myself as a man of God, 
my ethical parameters, the things that I do, the things that I don't do, do not connect me to Christ. But my connection to Christ dictates the things that I do or don't do. And if you ever swap places with that, we'll fail to understand what it is to be men of God. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is going to talk to an audience. And essentially, he's going to, he's going to confront the internals versus the externals. He's going to talk about four essential things that hamper a relationship with God, a righteousness. And in fact, in an unpublished manuscript that I got to read one time, it talks about the Sermon on the Mount. It says, are you righteous or are you merely religious? Because religious is outside, righteous is inside. Righteousness comes from God and then changes what we do. Religiosity says we can earn, build, or make righteousness, and therefore God has to cash a check for us. That's not true. So when Jesus starts out in the Sermon on the Mount, he starts out with a series of attitudes. And just like the Ten Commandments, the first half are people in God, the next half are people in people. And so he talks about, hey, don't be spiritually arrogant. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Be humble and submissive. Blessed are the meek. Recognize what you are without God. Blessed are those who mourn. And once I compare myself to God and figure out that I can't do this on my own, I've got to submit to God, then I'm going to hunger and thirst for righteousness. The only thing I'm going to do is seek this, and then I'm going to love people, I'm going to forgive people, I'm going to be a peacemaker, and I'm going to endure difficulties. Because just because the circumstances are bad doesn't mean I need to change my faith. Your faith doesn't affect your circumstances. Read Hebrews 11. Because in Hebrews 11, you have people who had superhero Marvel comic book endings. And in the last four or five verses in Hebrews 11, you have people who were killed, tortured, cut in half, sawn asunder, lived in caves. And then in Hebrews 12, he says, hey, look, don't be distracted when things are difficult. Because your circumstances are not affected by your faith. But don't let your faith be affected by your circumstances. So Jesus is talking about, hey, don't worry about when people persecute you because of your righteousness. Uh, I believe in a thing called intentional adversity. We need to do hard things. We need to teach our children to do hard things. Our children don't need to have easy lives. I'm capable, I'm significant, I can influence what happens to me are the three fundamental perceptives kids have to have in order to become adults. Uh, your job is not to prepare the path for your children. Your job is to prepare your children for the path. One of my friends who uh, is an extreme athlete, he just ran a 100-mile race in October, and he says, intentional adversity, I do things that you will not do, so I can do things that you cannot do. And I think that's what we need to be disciplining ourselves to do. We do things other people won't do or don't want to do so we can be men enough to do things they can't do. And that may be the kind of husbands we are, that's the kind of dads we are, that's the kind of stewards we are, that's the kind of servants we are. So Jesus starts out and says, hey, look at these attitudes. Now, if you, if you get these attitudes, if you do this, if you have these internal qualities... You'll be salt and you'll be light. And so he sets the stage. This is what it should look like. And then he gets to the controversial part of the Sermon on the Mount. Verse, seven, verse 12 of, uh, that's verse 17 of chapter 5. Do not think that I have come to abolish or destroy the law and the prophets. I have not come to destroy but to fulfill for truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or one tittle will by no means disappear from the law until everything is fulfilled. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do so, he'll be least in the kingdom, and whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses, exceeds, goes beyond the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So, 
you get called into your boss's office. And he says, I don't want you to think I'm mad. <laughs> What's about to happen? You walk, you go home today and your wife meets you at the door with a double hipper and a foot tapper. Now, I don't want you to think I'm upset. Guess what's about to happen? Okay? Jesus said, hey, I don't want you to think I'm destroying the law and the prophets. What's about to happen? He said, I'm going to say some things to you that when you hear them, you're thinking I'm taking the law and the prophets and throwing them out. I'm not here to destroy. I'm here to fulfill. I'm here to show you how this thing works and what it's supposed to look like, which infers that what you're doing is not what it's supposed to look like. And then he says, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you're not going to heaven. Now, Dale Jenkins would say, and he's a good friend of mine, Dale would say that this is, this is a challenge. Here's the scribes and the Pharisees, and, and if you don't at least match up to them and go past them, that, I'm setting the bar high. I think it's an indictment. If you don't do better than they're doing, you're not going to heaven. I think it's an indictment against the scribes and the Pharisees because you read Matthew 23 and 24, and he tells you how he really feels about the Pharisees. I didn't come to destroy the law. I came to fulfill, I came to show you what it looks like, and if you don't do better than these guys do, you're not going to make it into heaven. And then he begins what I believe to be a discussion of internals versus externals. This is external, superficial, self-selected criterion for righteousness, and this is what God says it ought to look like. Now, in the unpublished manuscript that my brother wrote, Are You Righteous or Merely Religious?, he says there's four things you battle, legalism, egotism, materialism, and criticism. Can you tell he's an attorney? <laughs> legalism, egotism, materialism, and criticism. Those are the things that Jesus is going to confront. And, and really, it's, it's all about internals versus externals. And if we're going to learn to be men of God like Jesus was, then we're going to have to get away from the idea of external self-selected criterion for righteousness, and it's going to have to be righteousness that follows values, not rules, the spirit of the law more than the letter of the law. Let's, let's look at a couple of examples. Number one, legalism. Now, there's nothing wrong with legalism, okay? Uh, in, in fact, legalism properly applied is a good thing. I'm a legalist when it comes to vertical stuff. Okay, there's a rule in, in, in running a, a ropes course that if your harnesses are more than five years old, you retire them. Well, I know that harnesses have a shelf life for 10 years, okay? But if you run a ropes course and I put you in a six-year-old harness and something happens to you while you're wearing that harness, guess who eats the liability? Okay, so I'm a legalist. Here's a perfectly good harness that I could use if I were personally climbing in it I'd use it for 10 years but on a ropes course I can't let a client have it so at the five year mark we take scissors to them and they're done I'm a legalist when it comes to firearms every firearm I have I assume is loaded by the way it doesn't work without bullets it's an expensive hammer so they need to stay loaded uh, we, we have a rule with SWAT if there's doubt there's no doubt. That's some deep Yoda Jedi Master stuff right there. Has this area been cleared? If there's doubt, there's no doubt. Clear it. Is this safe? If there's doubt, there's no doubt. It's not safe. Is it loaded? If there's doubt, there's no doubt. It's, it's loaded. Be careful with it. So, so, so there's this idea of, of learning these principles that we live by. And, and so Jesus says, I'm going to show you the, the, the spirit of the law, not just the letter. I'm a legalist when it comes to vertical stuff, when it comes to guns. But what they were doing with their legalism where they were micro-engineering the law and they were getting wrapped up in the minutia of the law. Again, I don't want to chase a rabbit. You do realize that first century Judaism was not covenant Judaism, Right? See, when you read the New Testament, you get Passover, 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 Passover. The big holiday in Judaism was Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. 
There's about three veiled references to Yom Kippur. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then we talk about propitiation. Uh, when Peter uses the word propitiation, he actually uses the word that means the cover of the Ark of the Covenant, the Hilesteron. And he calls Jesus the Hilesteron. He's our propitiation. Well, if you're in first century Judaism and you walk into Herod's temple and you sacrifice an animal, and you sprinkle the blood on the congregation, and then you go into the holy place, and you go between the veil of the, of, of the, the holy of holies. It was empty. That room had been empty for 600 years. The Ark of the Covenant was not in Ezra's temple. The Ark of the Covenant was not in Herod's temple. He'd been absent. For 600, they couldn't do Day of Atonement. They're living in a broken, there's, there's no covenant authority for the Sanhedrin court. The Sanhedrin court's job was to vet the Messiah. <laughs> you had one job. Well, they missed that. There's, there's no covenant authorization for a synagogue. Oh, we don't want to go to Jerusalem all the time. We got 10 men in the local city. We can set up a synagogue and discuss the law. They were playing with a failed, broken system and, and, and making stuff up. Jesus said, look, I didn't come here to destroy the law. I came to fulfill it. Because when he dies on the cross, he will become the Yom Kippur lamb. He will become the Passover lamb. And because he was sacrificed outside the city, I say he became the, the scapegoat as well. Everything about the law is going to be fulfilled in Jesus' priesthood and his sacrifice. But the practical application, how do men live, he's going to confront in these three short chapters. Example of legalism, internals versus externals. You've heard it said, this is verse 21, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. And anybody who says to his, his brother, Rekah, will be answerable to the court or to the Sanhedrin. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of hell and fire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift in front of the altar and go and first and be reconciled to them and then come offer your gift. I like being asked to preach at different places. I like being a guest speaker. It's very humbling. A lot of work went into this. And you guys said, hey, we're going to have guests in our home. And Lonnie, we want you to come talk to our guests. Do you know what a compliment that is? you know how humbling that is? you know what an honor that is? I mean, that, wow. I can't believe it. A little church called me in Tennessee. I looked it up on the map. Three hours. They want me to come speak on a Wednesday night. They want me to drive three hours, speak for 30 minutes, and drive three hours back. I can do that. Our topic, thou shalt not kill. Whoa, whoa, wait, wait, wait a minute. I don't really think our brethren have a big problem with killing each other. Right? I mean, have you ever seen anybody not survive a Wednesday? I mean, I've seen some churches get heated. We ain't killed nobody yet. So I said, look, I think I'll hard pass on driving three hours talking to your people about 30 minutes on thou shalt not kill because I just don't think the brethren out there are murdering each other. You can stand in a group of people and go, hey, anybody here ever kill anybody? And you get two hands at the most. Hey, you're a cop or you're a veteran. Yeah, okay, fine. That, that's not what the Bible's talking about. So when you read this passage, you shall not kill, we go, <laughs> done it. Check that box. And the Pharisees were doing that. We've never killed anybody. But if you were a Pharisee and a Samaritan walked across a rooftop and his shadow crossed you, you'd go home and take a bath because you were ceremonially unclean. Jesus sits down by a well, talks to a Samaritan woman, says, hey, can I have a drink of water? She says, what's the matter? Don't you know that Jews don't share vessels with Samaritans? What that means is if I'm drinking a cup and a Samaritan walks over and takes a sip of my cup, I take my cup home and I wash it. I take it out of the backyard, I break it, and I bury it. I don't share stuff with Samaritans. Well, they never killed anybody. But they looked at people and said, fool, an empty head, fag and queer and stupid, and insert your racial slur. See, nobody here's ever killed anybody. 
but we, we've devalued people. We've labeled them. We've had things to say about them out of our heart. The difference in murder and hate, one's internal, one's external. I walk in here and go loud. You go, hold on, he's in a bad mood. But I can hug your neck, shake your hand, look you in the eye and go, hey, brother. And in my heart, hate you. And the only person knows that's me and God. And that's hypocrisy. Because real men of God, their internals and their externals match. And their internals drive their externals. In fact, he says, not only do you not murder, not only do you not hate, if you go to the altar, come to worship, and you realize your brother has something against you. It doesn't say your brother's right. It doesn't say your brother has a clue. It doesn't say it's legitimate. You get to worship and you understand your brother and you have unfinished business, you initiate the repair attempt and you go fix it. And that is going and telling your brother, hey, have I done something wrong? We've messed that up for years. We've taken Matthew chapter 18 and said, if your brother sins against you, you go to your... And, and, and notice that word says, if your brother sins against you, that's a heaven or hell issue. If it's something that's not a heaven or hell issue then get over it and grow up and be a man. But we've used Matthew chapter 18 as a hunting license. If there's anything about you I don't like, Matthew 18, i got to go get you. Matthew 5 says if you've got unfinished business, you initiate the repair attempt and you're the guy asking for forgiveness, not asking him to repent. Internals versus externals, the difference in murder and hate. One's internal, one's external. Let's look at one more example, then we'll move. Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, anybody who looks at a woman and lusts after her in his heart has already committed adultery. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, and throw it away, it is better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away, it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to burn in hell. The difference in adultery and lust is just that. One's internal, one's external. You get out here and start cheating on your wife, somebody put that on Facebook. Somebody will take videos of that. Your wife will pick up your phone and read your text messages. She'll find your secret Facebook account. But you can walk by the ladies of the church. You can live in fantasy land. You look at porn on your phone and on your iPad and on your computer. And it's just between you and God. And Jesus said, as far as righteousness goes, one's just as bad as the other. Because the difference in, in lust and adultery is one's internal, one's external. And I can't caution you enough to stay away from pornography. Okay? It is a plague on our planet. It's a plague in the church, and it's killing our young men because they don't know how to have healthy relationships. Anytime you compare fantasy with reality, fantasy wins, and they're setting themselves up to live in perpetual grief because when life doesn't turn out like I expected to, I suffered loss, and humans grieve all losses. So if you start saying, this is what I expect sex to look like when I'm married, it's not going to look like that, it's not going to sound like that, she's not going to do that, and you live in perpetual loss and grief. Now, the, the, the deadly part of that is that a young man at 14 or 15 is interested in sex. And he's supposed to be interested in sex because he's a young man and he's wired for it. And so he starts looking at this stuff. And I'm not saying it's right, but it's pretty natural. Okay, now everything that's natural is not right. But, but he starts. But it starts with, I'm interested in naked girls, so I'm looking at these pictures. But at some point the endorphins associated with that and the seeking, you've got a seeking gene in your body and every time you look for novelty, you get a hit of dopamine. You know how many dopamine hits you can get scrolling through a phone? As fast as you can scroll, you can get them. And so all of a sudden, I'm interested in naked girls, but I start looking for and looking at naked girls when I'm bored, stressed, hungry, angry, lonely, or tired and now I'm using looking at these naked images as medicine for my mood, and it just became an addiction. 
But pornography in and of itself can be dealt with. You, you teach righteous men that not the way we look at women. And, and, let's, and, and don't send me emails. The Bible never addresses what the woman was wearing as far as too tight, too low, too high, or too short. The Bible always addresses what you're looking at and what you're thinking when you look. And so let's get off the backs of our women and say it's their fault that we lust. If she walks through here naked as men of God, we look away. And I'm surrounded sometimes by people who are in what I call the rabid conservative movement who will say, did you see what that girl was wearing? Well, her dress was so short I could see it. Well, you looked at her way longer than I did, buddy. And you're not proving what you think you're proving when you describe what she wasn't wearing. And as a, and this is anecdotal, as a private practice therapist in practice for 25 years, and I see from the public, I see from the public schools, and I see from the churches, 100% in my practice of the people who have same-sex attraction issues, the people who are dealing with some type of perversion, and the people who are addicted to pornography come from the extreme right wing of our fellowship who all they ever harp on is immodesty, 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 immodesty. I don't know how it's happening. It's not causal, but there's a correlation between that extreme. And you look at anybody who's extreme with it, the, the Catholic priest, the Amish community, the Muslim community, people who have an extreme overt overreaction to human sexuality and human skin are creating a fertile ground to grow little perverts killing our kids when we have that out of balance and we teach it wrong and you're welcome to, to disagree with that all you want to but I've been watching it for 25 years in private practice and when people come into my office and they start ticking off on my sons and lads to leaders and my son did debate and my son went to CYC and my son went to EYC and my son went to OU and YOU and AEIOU and they start telling me all the superficial things their kids have done I go okay is he gay or addicted to porn and I go, what? You've led off with how strict your child has been and how micro-controlled he's been. And you didn't teach him about the difference between adultery and lust. You've taught him purity of body, not purity of mind and heart. The difference in murder and hate, internal, external. The difference in adultery and lust, internal versus external. Second thing, Matthew chapter 6. And by the way, when, when you look at the rest of five, you, you get uh, divorce, you get breaking your promises, you get uh, civil reactions, and then you get this thing that, that says, you know, you've heard love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I tell you, love your enemy in order that you may be sons of your father. I treat you the way I treat you. It has nothing to do with how you treat me. I treat you the way I treat you because God is my father. And your, your behavior doesn't change my dictate from God. I don't get to say, well, because you acted this way, I get to act that way. No, no, I treat you the way I treat you because God's my Father. That's a, a spiritual self-identity, and that's an internal construct, not an external set of rules. Second thing, Matthew chapter 6, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. And then he talks about charity, he talks about prayer, and he talks about fasting. And in each of those things that we talk about as, as public things, notice what he says. Verse uh, 3, but when you give, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your father who sees in secret will reward you secretly. Prayer, but when you pray... Go into your closet, pray to your Father, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Fasting, verse 18, so verse 17, but when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. He says, look, fellas, if the things that we're doing religiously 
are to impress other people rather than influence, they're valueless. And so when we start talking about delivering a sermon or leading a prayer or giving our alms or some spiritual discipline, we don't fast. If you wanted to do something equivalent to biblical fasting, you put your cell phone up for a day. I have a, a friend, he's a professional athlete, and uh, he does uh, what he calls dopamine detox once a week. He touches no electronics, no radio, no TV, no cell phone, no iPad, no computer, and he dopamine detoxes. Now, to fast, you put that thing away, and every time you'd pick it up and scroll, you'd read your Bible or you'd pray. You just simply replace one activity for the other activity. That's what fasting was supposed to be in the Bible. You take the time that it takes to prepare a meal, cook a meal, eat the meal, and clean the meal, and you take that time, and in a society without electricity, that's a lot of time because you got to go get your water, you got to go get your wood, you got to go prepare your food. You didn't pull it out of the fridge and microwave it. So that's a lot of time. You take that time, and instead of eating and preparing, you're studying and meditating on God's Word. <laughs> These Pharisees literally would mess their hair up put women's makeup on to hollow their cheeks and walk around like the walking dead. Hey, Bob, you look rough. Yeah, I've been fasting. You know me, righteous, to the core. And Jesus said, look, when you fast, don't let anybody know about it. How many times did Jesus get accused of not fasting? Well, you know whether he did or not. Because <laughs> he said, you're not going to make a show of it. Right? In fact, when he cast the demon out after he comes down from the Man of Transfiguration and his disciples say, hey, why can we cast it out? Jesus will say, this kind only comes out by prayer and fasting. And that wasn't some mantra. That wasn't some Harry Potter spell. Jesus said, I've been praying and fasting as a lifestyle and you guys hadn't been doing that. I've been doing things you want so I can do things you can't. And so we're not sure how often the Messiah fasted. But Jesus said, when you do, you don't do it to show off. And the same thing about leading a public prayer, fellas. And the same thing about presenting a public sermon. Same thing about leading a song. You want to be technically precise. You want to have skills. You want to learn. And, and by the way, the Lance to Leaders program, wow, does it teach our young men the ability to do some things and do it in a proper way. Uh, Jack Zorn, uh, Dr. Zorn was a minister when I was a little boy at my church. And he taught us to do some things and do them well. But if you do it to impress people and you do it so you get an boy, then Jesus said, you got your reward and God's not going to give you one. Internals versus externals. And then he talks about our value system. We've done legalism. We've done egotism. Now look at chapter 6, verse uh, 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust does corrupt, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not corrupt and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You guys remember, let's make a deal. Behind door number one is something worthless you can't keep. Behind door number two is something priceless you can't lose. Now, you don't need a rock and a scientist to figure that out, do you? <laughs> hey, you got something here that's worthless and you can't keep it. you got something here that's priceless and you can't lose it. Where's your value system at? Because where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. When, when my daughter was very little, she got a hold of one of my big mag multi-cell flashlights. She's standing on my thighs and looking in my mouth with a flashlight. Never let a toddler get a hold of your metal flashlight, by the way. She's like, Daddy, open water. Daddy, open water. Daddy, open water. And she gets on her tiptoes, and she's sticking that flashlight down in my mouth. And finally, she just dropped the flashlight, plopped down on the couch, and said, I can't see your heart. <laughs> and you laugh because you think a child is ridiculous that they can see your heart. And I laugh at you because you think they can't. Because where your treasure is, there your heart is. And you teach them what is important every day. And you teach them where your value system is. And you teach them every day, hey, this is what's really important in our family and this is what's really important in our lives. In the book of Deuteronomy, Moses said, hey, you put this in your heart. You put this on your gate. You put this on your fence. You wear it on your bracelet. You wear it on your T-shirt. You wear it on your ball cap. Because the, the, the word of God and the statutes that we live by permeate our lifestyles. They're not this thing that we do in compartmentalization. I know 
if you're a guy, you've struggled with family devotionals, right? Because family devotionals look like miniature church. Family comes in, sits in the living room, dad gets up. Well, I, I should probably make some announcements. The dog needs to be fed. <laughs> Your room's a disaster area. We're out of Captain Crunch. You know, we make announcements and then we have the family devotional. G Moses told the people of Israel, you don't sit down and have family devotionals. You live a devoted life to God. And when you lie down and you rise up and you walk in the way, it's on your fence, it's on your flag, it's on your bracelet, it's on your t-shirt, it's on your ball cap, so that you have conversational spirituality and, and spirituality permeates your home. And it's not something we do, it's something we are. And when it's something that we are, it overflows in our lives. And so where your treasure is, there's your heart. And we get wrapped up in chasing this stuff, fellas. He who dies with the most toys still dies. Paul tells Timothy in chapter 6, command those who are rich. Now, he spends a lot of the chapter saying, hey, don't chase riches. And then he admits that some of us run into it. You live in America, you're rich. So he's talking to us, command those who are rich not to be haughty. You didn't do anything to earn it. You used a gift that God gave you to be, become successful. Don't be haughty. Don't put your trust in uncertain riches. A fire, a stock market crash, an F4 tornado, and it's all gone. But put your trust in the living God who gives to all men richly that they might be rich in good works, rich in deeds, willing to give, able to share. So the stuff that you have is not for your own consumption. The things that you have and the tools that you have and the talents that you have are equipment for us to use as servants. And so my house belongs to my neighbors, my car belongs to my neighbors, my money belongs to my neighbors, my skill set belongs to my neighbors. But, but we get so wrapped up that we, we, we think it's about accumulation rather than taking the things that we have and the things that we earn and the things that we make and the things we and using them to serve other people. And you've been around the super generous and then you've been around those folks who hoard. And the super generous are the people who are like God and they give. And so where your treasure is, there where your heart belongs. And, and really, you don't have to worry about it. You ever seen a bird? I hunt. I like to hunt. I like to spend time in the woods. Shooting a deer is, is, is ketchup on the french fries. 14 degrees, I'm sitting out there bundled up. I've got a mask on, I've got gloves on, I'm in insulated coveralls, and a chipmunk walks out. He looks at you like, what are you doing out here? You don't have any fur. That little chipmunk will be taking care of the whole winter. Those little grass birds, your father knows every one of them. And not one of them falls to the ground, he doesn't know it now. Now, if he takes care of those birds, won't he take care of you? Look at these dandelions popping up in your yard. They don't grow on their own. They grow on their own. They don't harvest. They don't gather. They're here today, and you'll cut them down tomorrow. Yet your father clothes them, and they're, they're dressed better than Solomon was. And if God decorates the flowers like that, won't he take care of what you need to wear? So you don't have to worry about this physical stuff. You, you, you work diligently, and you're a good steward and you provide for your family, and the rest of it will come as it comes. For your treasure is, there your heart is also. And then the last thing he says about having internals versus externals is Matthew chapter 7. Do not judge, or you will be judged. For in the same measure you use for others, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at a speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? And how can he say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove it from your brother's eye. So he's talking about judging. And please understand that, that judging, when Jesus talks about it, is not comparing something to an empirical standard. Okay, there's an empirical standard for some things. Next time you get pulled over by a state trooper, go, you're judging me. <laughs> See how that works. Now, he'll show you a number on a sign, a number on his radar gun. Okay? This is where I take some self-selected criterion 
and decide to take something that you're doing that I don't like or I disagree with and I blow it out of proportion in order to ignore something that's huge in my eye. It'd make a beautiful cartoon if you drew it. You got a guy standing here in old plank eye. And he's got a pair of tweezers and he's coming after a guy with a speck of dust. He said, come here, let me get this out of your eye. That's what Jesus is talking about. And how ridiculous is that? You think about the number of times that the church has been fragmented because somebody decided to make a law that God didn't have. The, o- the only thing worse than disobeying a law that God gave is creating a law that God didn't. And then using it as a measure to compare us so we can have tears of righteousness. Galatians, I, I like to study the book of Galatians, I call it gospel plus one. Now, when you study the book of Galatians, you ask, hey, what's wrong in the book of Galatians? And, and I'm going to say this, and, you know, as Phil, Phil Williams' wife says, I said what I said. Okay? In most congregations, your adult auditorium class is for people who are not motivated enough to go to class. Okay? So they want to come in and sit in their pew. And what do most auditorium classes look like? Phil, read verse 7. Phil reads verse 7. Phil, what do you think? I think it means what it says. Bob, what do you think? I agree with Phil. All right, let's read verse 8. <laughs> right? You've been in those classes, right? So you're sitting in the adult auditorium class and you study the book of Galatians. You say, what's the problem in the book of Galatians? And this wizened guy who's read all the commentary raises his hand and says, Judaizing teachers. And that's right. That's absolutely textbook right. You had these guys in Galatia who were Judaizing. What does that mean? It means that when Paul says, I'm amazed that you've departed the gospel and chased another gospel, and if we or an angel from heaven bring you any other gospel, he's accursed. And I said it once and I'll say it again. If we or an angel from heaven bring you any other gospel, let him be accursed. Well, you know what they were teaching in Galatia? They weren't compromising on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. They weren't saying baptism wasn't essential. They weren't giving people a pass on fornication. They said, oh, you want to be a Christian? Well, you need to be a super Christian. And you circumcise your babies, and you follow this day, and you make this day holy, and these are foods you can't eat, and these are foods you can't eat. And they'd taken ceremonial cleanliness from the tradition of Judaism and made it a criterion for righteousness. And Paul said, that's not another gospel. And it needs to be condemned. And so when we start making up things and say, you know what, this is how you have to dress to come to worship. This is the version of the Bible you have to read. And this is how many times your church has to meet. All those are autonomous issues for congregations to make because God gave the elders that authority. But when I start saying, oh, let me look at that in that eye, boy. (laughs) And I'm hating and judging people. Romans chapter 14. Romans 12 describes how spiritually mature and mentally healthy people live in the church. Romans 13 is a description of how spiritually mature, mentally healthy people live with civil government. And Romans 14 says, this is how people who go to the same church but have some disagreements about stuff get along. And he says, who are you to condemn? Another man's servant. To his own master he will stand or fall, and his father will make and his master will make him stand. There are some things that I get to make a decision on that you don't get to make a decision on. And if you make a decision, oh honey, you didn't dot your eye and cross your T where I did, you're condemned. He said, God will look at you the same way. And I want to be judged with grace and mercy. I don't want to be judged with what I deserve. And I want to give you the benefit of the doubt. But how many times have we seen ourselves cut each other up and make ourselves feel better? One of my best friends on the plants, a guy named Derek Horst. Derek is six foot seven inches tall. He can kneel down in this floor and reach higher than I can reach standing up. He's a great big old boy. If I sneak in his house tonight and cut his legs off, tomorrow morning I'll still be five foot four inches tall because cutting his legs out from under him won't make me an inch taller. And shoving you away from God won't make me any closer to God. 
and judge not, then you'll be not judged. For the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And who are you with a plank in your eye to say, hey, let me get my tweezers and dig this sawdust out of your eyes. So Jesus is talking to a group of people who thought they had it figured out. And he said, look, I want you to understand that what the scribes and the Pharisees are doing is not righteousness according to God. And if you don't do it better than they do it, then God's not going to be pleased with you. And then chapter 7, he continues and, and talks about, you look at a tree and you look at its fruit, you tell. You look at a fountain and you taste the water, you can tell. And then the last thing he says in chapter 7 Verse 24, therefore anyone who hears these sayings of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it was founded on a rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain descended, the, the waters rose, the winds blew and beat on that house and it fell with a great crash. You see, the last thing Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount is he tells a story about internals versus externals. you got these two houses. And the rains descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house. Whose house was that, the wise house or the fool's house? Well, that was both houses. You can't tell where the wise man lives based on the circumstances outside his house. You're not a good or a bad parent based on what your kids do. You're a good or a bad parent based on how you respond to what your kids do. Okay? You know, I used to read this story when I was a little kid, and you sing the wise man built it. And I had the idea that the wise man's house looked like, you know, a Jim Walter home, and the foolish man's house looked like, you know, something the three little pigs built. You know, these houses look the same. And you're walking around the neighborhood, what a nice house, what a nice house. And then you get these external circumstances and the wind and the rain and the storms and the trouble and the stuff that happens in life. And this house collapses and this house stands. What's the difference? The foundational difference. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, legalism, egotism, materialism, criticism. And what was missing in the fool's house was nothing above ground. It was framed and square, and look, it just had sand for a foundation. The wise man's house was built in the same construction plan, but it started with something underneath. So if we're going to be men of God, the fundamental change that has to take place is internally, and when I change what I am, it will automatically change what I do. Your identity defines actions you make. I've I've had to come to the conclusion that I am a diabetic. The doctor said, hey, your pancreas is a dumpster fire. Well, no, doc, I, I, no. Yeah, I wear this little monitor on my arm, and it beeps at me when I eat wrong. It's tied to my wife's phone, by the way. And it tells her when I eat wrong, which is just bad. I mean, it's like, you know. But once I, once I said I am diabetic, it changed my exercise, it changed my food intake, it changed some expectations about what I will do and not do because my identity changed. Now, I've tried to lose weight all my life dieting. You know, as a little kid, we'd go to J.C. Penney's and buy blue jeans, and my brother got Slims and I got Huskies. Huskies is the J.C. Penney way of saying, you're fat. Well, I just always enjoyed being Husky. Well, you turn 55 and you're Husky and you're diabetic. I graduated high school weighing 100, I graduated college weighing 165 pounds. I weighed 164 this morning. Because back late last year, I said, I am diabetic. And when you eat white processed stuff and you eat sugar and you eat carbs, it does bad things to your body. And once I changed my identity, you know, I'm not a fitness model, but Last time I saw 165 was on a sign going to Memphis, <laughs> and I'm here now because I changed how I saw myself and it affected my actions. And we change ourselves internally. The stuff on the outside will take care of itself. Thank you, guys. I look forward to the next session.